Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Politicana. Today we're on episode 156. My name is Tyler. Of course you have Pratik and Nick here uh, as always. Please follow, please share the podcast. Really appreciate it. I know we took a little break. I was in vacation in Europe, but I'm glad to be back home in America where I belong, the best country in the world, of course. And to kick it off, we're going to be starting it right off with our boy Biden. So Biden thinks he's 60 and Taylor is Brittany. President Biden celebrated his 81st birthday with a turkey mix-up that would rival any comedy sketch, confusing Taylor Swift with Britney Spears during the turkey pardoning. He quipped about the turkeys facing tougher odds than scoring tickets to the Renaissance Tour or Britney's warm Brazilian adventure. Even the turkeys, Liberty and Belle, got in the Swift craze, jamming to her tunes before they officially got their grand pardon. National Turkey Federation Chairman Steve Lichen confirmed they're officially Swifties. Biden also joked about the difficulties of turning 60, seemingly forgetting that he's now a sprightly 81-year-old man. Meanwhile, a poll showed that him, he was trailing Trump among young voters, proving his age is just a number. Unless you forget it, of course. So thank you for that critique. I, I loved uh, that little uh, summary we had there. What are you guys' thoughts on the pardoning? I thought it was funny that everybody's Swifties and these people are Swifties and the chickens or turkeys are also Swifties. So, you know. I wonder if Biden's a Swifty. That's the main question on all of our on all of our minds. But he probably thinks that Taylor Swift is Britney Spears. So, no, and him, to appeal to the young the female vote, he's gonna have to be all right. He's gonna be playing every song in the Eras tour. He's gonna have to be jamming out because God help him if he's gonna win this next election. His chances aren't looking very good. But fun to start on a light note. Getting to something more serious though, Pratik, what's going on with TikTok? <clears throat> is TikTok pro Bin Laden? So TikTok went from dance challenges to Osama bin Laden debates, causing a stir that's more than just a tempest in a teapot. Recently, they faced controversy over Osama bin Laden's Letter to America videos surfacing the platform, sparking calls to ban the app. Bipartisan concerns about TikTok ties to China escalated, emphasizing the platform's role in shaping opinions. Amid the Israel-Hamas conflict, outrage spread as the videos criticized Israel's actions. The White House condemned the surfacing of the Death to America letter that was translated, The Guardian retracted his translation, and TikTok denied virality. This incident highlights social media's power, triggering moral panics and fueling debates on platform regulation. So, Nick and Heller, what are your thoughts on TikTok, and or is TikTok officially pro-Bin Laden? Mm, I don't think so. You know, anytime something like this happens, people call for bans. I mean, there are many reasons to want to ban TikTok for sure. Many security reasons, etc. Um, but simply uh, promulgating this kind of letter, I, I don't think that's worthy of a ban. Is it disgusting? Yes, it is. Does it show that some people's views align very tightly with one of the most significant terrorists of the past 30 years? Yes, it does. So maybe some people should be questioning their own thoughts and opinions after, you know, watching those videos, absorbing that content, and kind of agreeing with that messaging. It's sad to see, but I'm not quite, I'm not surprised. Yeah, what's, I don't know. I think it's totally fine to share stuff like this. Um, I think if you're trying to promote yourself as a free speech platform, for example, when Trump um, forced the sale of TikTok to a U.S. parent, like to a U.S. company, I don't know. I feel like that was sort of getting at, okay, we're not going to have as much Chinese influence. And then every time something happens, people go, oh my God, Chinese influence, we need to do something. And so it's like, okay, we, we just need to figure out line in the sand, what we want to do with it. I know we're not going to, but it would be nice to have some sort of clarity on where Congress even stands on it. Because it seems like anytime something like this comes up, 
like you were saying, Tyler, it's just an excuse to call for banning it, even though, you know, this has nothing to do with the actual cybersecurity concerns that people do bring up as very valid concerns. For the Osama bin Laden thing in particular, I don't, again, I don't really have an issue with it sort of circulating around the platform, especially if, you know, I didn't end up watching the video, but um, if it's simply there's a public letter and you read it, like, I, I don't know. Like, what, what exactly is it that you're doing? Yes, you could say hate speech. Yes, if it's actually calling for the genocide of someone, then it shouldn't be on the platform. But if it's just, hey, like, parallels to the 9-11 attacks, here's what Osama bin Laden wrote prior to doing it, what's the big deal? Sure. You did mention that, you know, positioning themselves as a free speech platform. I don't think they're even trying to position themselves like that. Um, but I will say, if you do support the banning of TikTok, don't vote for Nikki Haley. Vote for Vivek. This is exactly what they talked about in their last debate. He even called out Nikki Haley and said, look, even your daughter uses it. You can't stop her. We need to ban this platform. So, you know, it kind of does tie into the current presidential election, but it doesn't specifically have to do with this issue, the free speech issue. My thought process is that with Bin Laden's story, like, again, I'm very, I'm very pro-Israel, so I'm very anti a lot of the conversations that have happened. They're trying to justify all the stuff that Palestine's done and all this conversation that, you know, we need to become more sympathetic to the people that put Hamas in power and they're the ones that created the bomb and we need to feel sorry for these people that are being invaded and people are dying and all this stuff. I get it. I get the conversation, but, you know, you vote for somebody, that's the policy that happens. At the same time, Osama bin Laden's letter is public information. You can go on to any website and you can you can go on to Google, search up Osama bin Laden letter, and you can find this letter. It's available online and you can be able to read it and you can translate it through Google Translate and read exactly what it says. So personally, does this like, should it be, should TikTok have to, TikTok, TikTok, should TikTok have to ban, you know, That's bin Laden's letter? Probably not. I honestly think that, you know, people should have free speech rights on these platforms. People have the, should have use their own brains and decide what they want to believe. And just because they see some content out there, that doesn't mean that they're automatically brainwashed and they believe everything that is writing. But I think this is the way this should be. This is like, you know, supporting book banning, like book burning and all that crap that used to happen before. You have books that are available online that are available to public that are bad books. Mein Kampf, Adolf Hitler's book is also available. You can read it and you can like find it online. It's for free. My point is, is that these things are public information and no matter how bad it is or what, you know, the what's said inside of these letters or what's said in these books, there's no point of banning it because it's public information. And I think that if TikTok is a streaming platform or is like a social media platform, then anybody can post anything on social media and anything can surface or trend. I honestly don't think that this is worth like you need to ban the app and all this stuff. But hey, this is my party's been talking about this stuff for a while now. Nikki Haley's been like the main pusher of like we need to ban TikTok. And me personally, I think it's stupid. Social media is social media. If you believe one thing is correct or one thing is should be allowed and one thing shouldn't be allowed, that's free speech. If you're going to if you're going to justify having something on some surface plat surf uh, some platform but not other things that are also as bad and controversial then it's you're playing hypocrite hypocrisy and i would personally just be like we need to allow all things to you know be surfaced on any of these social media platforms because again it's up to the person reading or listening or watching the video to decide what they feel about it 
and they can there will be people that have read this letter that are people that are probably hardcore far right people that are like man what is wrong with osama bin laden my point is is that people have their ability to make their own decisions but i don't think we should ban an app just because somebody decided to post something online of something that is already publicly available to anybody to read on the internet and what, what's interesting is you know these platforms don't have to have free speech it's, it's one of those situations where we've talked about this before. I would love for, for these companies to have to enforce free speech. They don't. They can take it down. Um, do we know if they had taken down this content or not? That's yeah, they, they took said. it down. Yeah. Okay. But see, okay. Tyler, the thing is, though, do you remember back in the day, we even when we were on our show, like I'd probably say 100 episodes ago, we were arguing about whenever Twitter was starting to ban all these Republican people because, you know, they talked about how COVID came from China and that's a lie. And it should, didn't come from China. It came from somewhere else. It didn't come from Wuhan, China in a lab. But we need to ban all these people that are on Twitter saying this stuff because it's all fake news and fake information. Now we found out that the COVID stuff did come from that Wuhan lab, like, you know, 100 episodes later. But my point is, is that back then, we were, I was arguing the same thing. Like, why are you banning people? Because they have an opinion on a platform. These are not intelligence expert people. These are people that are on social media. These are the same people that if they hear some rumor on WhatsApp news, they're going to be like, man, this is fact. And I'm going to fight to the depths of the earth to prove that it's true. Like, this is not like, this. Any these people are regular people. It's not like AP News is surfacing like Osama Bin Laden letter and be like, yo, look at what this said, blah, 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 blah. And even if they did, it's not like they committed a crime or anything. This is publicly available information. People are messed up people that live in our world. These, this guy is a terrorist that murdered a but bunch of people. But let's take that to an died. extreme. Let's say we have millions of people, you know, they suddenly support Osama Bin Laden. A lot of them become become Nazis. All this is being spread online. Is that okay? Because to some degree, I mean, the narrative does matter. They are regular people. But if you have enough regular people believing something and willing to take action on something, that could potentially be dangerous. Personally, Tyler, I think people are smarter than that. They're just Somebody's going to tell them something and they're just going to believe whatever they hear. And in all honesty, again, my thought process is this is all publicly available information. I can go on Google, search up Osama bin Laden letter to America, find this, find this letter that's saying that America needs to burn in hell and I can read it. And then I could still be like Osama bin Laden's a messed up person. And I think that why, why is this stuff? Why did Osama bin Laden even live for as long as he did? He's such a terrible human being. I can think that I could have read the letter. It's not like the letter is convincing me to believe whatever I'm believing. Dude, if that was the case, then there would be no Republicans on any college campuses, man. But they exist. The point is, is that there, there always is going to be people that are going to believe, say something or write something or have something posted. But it doesn't mean that the person reading that information should be is automatically going to be brainwashed if they read it. And if we were to go about it that way, then we should ban so much things left and right and center. Because, you know, there's a chance that something can happen somewhere. And, you know, somebody could be brainwashed and think that we need to do crazy stuff. People aren't like that. And in all honesty, if we people start becoming like that, it's a problem. But the more you censor and ban things, maybe that could happen. So we should allow things to be publicly available information. And if things are already public, why are you complaining about it to TikTok? This is just a random app. You could have posted something that's talking about how bad Osama bin Laden is on the social media app. Well, I think the, the biggest concern is like it's a call for advertisers essentially to say, stop advertising here. Look what they're propagating. But I, I 
I, I largely agree with what you just said there. Nick, any comments before we move on? No, I think it just shows how, even as we're talking about this, because on the one hand, a lot of people may have the opinion that, oh, well, if something is fake or if something is made up, like if there's an AI-generated video of uh, Biden saying that Osama bin Laden was right or something, like, should that be taken down? I think it would be funny, personally. Like, as long as you can tell it's fake, like, big, big whoop. But I feel like there's plenty of stuff... For example, if someone was actively had an account calling for the active genocide of a group of people in the United States, I feel like it would be reasonable for that person to have their account banned or suspended. But at the same time, like as Pratik was just talking about, you know, people say all sorts of crazy stuff online and all that it doesn't it doesn't mean that all of a sudden all these other people take what they say at face value, accept it and then totally change their identities to become neo-Nazis. Like, that's not what's happening. So it, it's just one of those things where, again, I think our conversation has sort of highlighted why Congress is not going to do anything on this anytime mm-hmm. soon, because there's so many different edge cases. And in a lot of those cases, it depends on your perspective. For example, you know, I would say, oh, a lot of environmental stuff is pretty mainstream as far as like air pollution or climate change or what have you. And then all these other people on different sites will say, this is all fake. This is all made up. None of this is real. And, you know, you you should be deplatformed because you're just lying to the public. And so it's like when you have stuff like that, which way do you go? And I think the the easiest way to do it and the best way to do it, frankly, is to just not be involved. But maybe things escalate to the point where, you know, again, they get very serious. And like happened with COVID, you see everyone fall in line from the news agencies to government officials like everyone saying the same narrative but unless it's a crisis i don't think we need a heavy-handed approach to moderating things online but- interesting so but you're saying a crisis justifies it because i'll say so remember the twitter files so after musk t- took over twitter he released something called the twitter file files which exposed that a lot of these social media companies including twitter had back doors where the government the dhs was able to say we don't like this content remove it shadow ban it whatever that is direct action by the government covertly. And to me, that's disgusting. So, I mean, overtly, they might be not doing anything, but perhaps covertly they are. And that's kind of really scary, in my opinion. Yeah, I, again, I see what you're saying. I think, like, for, for example, let's just say, let's just say there was, like, someone who came on, let's say Dr. Fauci came on and was like, everyone should b- drink bleach tomorrow and you will be cured. And then some, you know, government operative had a, a back door and said, no, that's nonsense. Like, I'm going to ban this. Like, I would be fine with that. No, people should not be drinking bleach. But I, again, like you said, who's to say bleach is good or not for you? No, that's that's the thing. Like, you just devolve into the why. Yeah. why? It's like talking to a five year old. It's like, why? 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 And yeah. if you have good arguments, they should win the day, which is why I think you shouldn't be able to do anything with these pla- or why you shouldn't touch these platforms. But like, I do think if there was a national crisis, Let's say tomorrow we wake up and the United States and China are at war. Suddenly, you have billions of bots flooding the United States social media system with all this garbage propaganda. Then I think it would be safe to say, oh, look, we, we value fr- fair and free internet. We value free speech. But if you know something is a bot and you know something is a coordinated attack by another foreign adversary... Then I think it's totally fine to start banning those accounts from IP addresses outside the U.S. Which but, ideally is correct, but then, then we had the government actually doing it to American citizens. Right, and that's the, where the, I think it's wrong. Yeah. 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 All right, let's move on to the next story. Um, All right. So tell us about the biggest news probably of the day, Nick. Yeah, so a four-day temporary ceasefire has been announced, and a hostage exchange is going on with Israel and Hamas. 
So the Qatari government on Wednesday helped garner a truce for hostages deal between Israel and Hamas that would bring a four-day halt in fighting and a devastating six-week war, a winning freedom for dozens of hostages held in the Gaza Strip and also leading to the release of 150 Palestinian prisoners, women, and children. Uh, the deal will involve 50 Israeli hostages being exchanged by Hamas for 150 Palestinian prisoners of war held by Israel. Only women and children will be freed by both sides. And Bibi Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister, has affirmed that Israel will persist in its conflict with Hamas, rejecting a temporary ceasefire. In fact, he actually said um, for every 10 hostages that are released after this deal, he'll extend the ceasefire by one day, um, which, of course, puts internal pressure on. Uh, in Gaza. But in any case, despite a imminent cabinet vote on a truce proposal, Bibi has emphasized an ongoing war until all objectives are met. But in terms of the deal, the humanitarian aid to Gaza will increase, according to the Qatari government. Again, they're patting themselves on the back for getting this deal done. And Israel's commitment extends to dismantling Hamas's military capabilities and securing the release of all hostages. The region stands on the brink of a potential deal to pause um, the war for for all the remaining hostages so pratik and tyler this is pretty big news we've been talking about hostages for weeks you know the negotiators have been working in the background finally they have a deal that's been done so what do you guys think about it i honestly think that i mean we talked about this stuff before and i've had my strong opinions on the pro-israel side where i think that you know america should support israel no matter what if israel wants to attack let them attack because they were the ones originally attacked and we should support them without, you know, any terms or conditions or whatsoever. But at the same time, I do think that there is a lot of bad blood on both sides. Now, if you look at this whole conflict resolution, this whole deal that took place, it involves 50 Israeli hostages. So Hamas is not really releasing all of the hostages that were kidnapped. They're only releasing 50, which is bad because in the end, these are hostages. They were people that were kidnapped by the Palestinian government after the after the Hamas attack took place where they murdered, you know, 1400 Israeli civilians. That's all granted. At the same time, their exchange is questionable because you're exchanging them for 150 Palestinian prisoners of war, people that have been in Palestine forever. This is not just war either. These Palestinians that have been prisoners, these are people that have been in jail for a long period of time, some of these people, but they're all women and children. So it's like this masqueraded by the women and children fact. At the same time, you have to also remember that these are people that were in jail. Some of these people may have been good people. That were, you know, put in jail for the wrong reasons. But there are still people that were in jail. So people that were Israeli hostages are not the same as the people that are Palestinian prisoners. Because the people that are Palestinian prisoners, these people may have committed a crime, hence they're in jail. As opposed to the people that were kidnapped, and many of these people were either raped or they had pictures like, you know, surfacing of all these hostage people, hostages that were taken by Hamas being raped. There was conversations about how they're going to behead X amount of people if Israel doesn't back down from, you know, their rhetoric about stuff that has taken place and all this stuff. So... I think that in my opinion, even though it's good that they're getting some form of deal taking place, I do think it's forced. Israel is giving up a lot more than Palestine is giving up. And I do feel that at the, in the same time, all of these countries are all going to pat themselves on the back that Qatar is like, oh, wow, you know, we got this thing done and Biden was involved. So the Americans are going to take it as a win too. But it's like we're 
I feel like all of these pressures have been have been promoting the fact that it's like, oh, well, Israel was originally attacked and all these people died, but we need to forget about that because Israel is the larger power and they're just bombing the crap out of Palestine right now. So we need to be on Palestine's side. Palestinians are suffering right now. There are people that are dying over there. And it's all because Israel is bombing the crap out of Palestine. But the conflict originally began where Palestinian, the Hamas government attacked Israel. And the Hamas government that um, is in charge of the Gaza Strip were elected by the civilians living in Gaza. So they knew going in that as soon as they were to go launch an attack killing 1,400 Israelis, that the Israel government is going to do something back. And they knew that the people that are going to be affected are the same people that elected them into power, aka the Palestinian civilians that are dying and their hospitals are overcrowded and all this stuff. My long rant to, to a T is just that in my opinion, this deal isn't really a fair deal. They're just trying to force something through to force something through to end the conflict. But it's like in the end, Israel was still the one that lost out in this whole conflict. They didn't gain anything. Even they didn't even get a hundred. They didn't even get most of their prisoners back. They only got twenty percent of all the people that the Palestinian people held hostage. They haven't really accomplished anything from this deal. All they got done is the Qatari government and the Americans are like Israel. You guys need to back down. You're all a bunch of losers, and we need to allow the Palestinians to have more aid given to them. We need to allow them to. We need to allow this conflict to be at a halt for a little bit because all these Palestinians are dying. And in my opinion. If I was an Israeli or if I was a Jewish citizen, I would argue that the, the governments at play that are the ones that have coordinated this whole ceasefire are very biased towards the Palestinian side. And I think that, you know, if you want to have a negotiation take place where the both sides, like that Israel is allowed to have, you know, more of a win, they should have like at least got majority, if not all of the hostages out. Because 50 of 249 is not really a fair deal especially when you're exchanging it for 150 Palestinian people that are in jail. But they're all women and children, which is good. But again, it's like, you know, who are all these people that were in jail? They might have been people that are bad. It's not just like, you know, it can't just be anybody. But the people that are Israeli, that were Israeli hostages taken by Palestine, those are regular civilians that were kidnapped against their will. And they didn't do anything to be that get the deserve, you know, the punishment that they deserve, where they're getting people that are like, you know, being raped and, you know, having beheading videos posted to them. To me, I think that's wrong. And I think that the governments in place were did wrong to Israel. And this is why I don't like the Biden administration, because the the Biden administration isn't really pro-Israel and they're not really pro-Palestine. They're just somewhere caught in the middle and they can't decide what they want to do personally. Yes, I think you made some good points there. It's it's not in an even trade by any means, but I think the goal of the, Palest uh, the Israeli government right now is to make sure that their citizens that are hostages are safe. Now, Let's say let's say Israel just decides to bomb the crap out of Palestine and doesn't stop. There's a very low, uh, very low percentage chance that they actually get these hostages back alive. So I think the the primary goal for them right now is get these people out safely, and then whatever happens after happens after. Maybe the war continues. Maybe they keep bombing them. But right now they need to get as many of their their civilians out of there. And I think that that's a decent move. I like to see that there is some progress here because. If you can't negotiate at all, then there's only conflict. There's only warfare. Yeah, it's interesting. So a few of the hostages are American by nationality. So they're, yeah, so they're going to be released. 
Um, and the Supreme Court of Israel just um, rejected. Um, someone made an appeal saying that you know the deal shouldn't go through and that it's not a good enough deal, and they they rejected that and they're going ahead with it to uphold it. Um, for Benjamin Netanyahu, again, it seems like from his messaging that after this, suppose all the hostages were exchanged. Let's just say that was the case. Even if that happened, it seems like he still wants to be at war. So I don't know where peace is actually going to come into play. Obviously, having a four-day pause is better than nothing. And sort of saying that for every 10 hostages, you'll extend it by an additional day. Good. But again, it's not clear from this where the end of the conflict is, because it doesn't seem like he would be happy with all the hostages being returned and then, okay, we're good. That's not how it's going to go. Now, of course, very reasonable to have that level of retribution and wrath coming from the Israeli government. But again, I get back to my earlier points as I made on previous episodes of like, where does this conflict end? And it's still not clear. It's not clear, but the Israelis, they, they're always going to hold the upper hand because they have the military might. They have the advantage there. They can at any moment say, we're going to take out 10,000 of you with our bombs. So I don't know. I think they're trying to play the long game here and say, let's just get these guys out safely. That's priority number one. And after we're going to we're going to keep going at it. You know, it's funny, like Argent Argentina is like the only other country besides the United States. that's like, yeah, let's support Israel in this. I think for um the new president, that's what he said coming in. He's an anarcho-capitalist. Yeah. We'll get to him later in the show. But um, the new president who was just elected was like, oh, we're going to help out Ukraine. We're going to help out Israel. We're going to help out everyone. <laughs> it's like, I feel like that's the type of stuff you get away with, like your first day in office. But then once you actually have to govern and the fact that his economy, like the reason he was elected in Argentina was the economy was so messed up. Maybe this is getting away from the Israeli point, but it's just ironic to me that a country where the sole reason why the election was decided the way it was, was the poorly functioning economy, which is why this guy was elected. For that guy to just say, yeah, the economy's bad. People are having a tough time now. But you know where we can spend our money? On another conflict well, in the Middle perhaps East. it's go. an investment <laughs> in, uh, you know, you're, you're aiding U.S. interests. And if you do that, then we'll have, you know, more communications, more economic activity with them, given that what's been going on the past however many years. And Israel does have a lot of innovation going on there. So I guess that's fair. And see, I would, my only argument is like, I've talked about this in the last episode too. If the situation was elsewise, where let's say Palestine was America's ally, and, you know, Palestine and Israel have their conflict. There's arguments on both sides that are at play that are like, you know, this is the reason why something is the way it is. There is much more anti-Semitism within the Palestinian side because all the countries that are surrounding Israel want to literally blow Israel up. They don't when they want to eliminate Israel from existing. That's the whole argument. Now, that does that is really anti-Semitic. But at the same time, the Palestinian people's argument is that this was Palestinian land for an X amount of time. And then recently, since 1940s, it became Israel, which that's their argument. Now, I would just argue that in my case, as an American, that I would want my government to support our allies. If Israel is our ally, we support our allies. The same way Qatar and Lebanon and all these other countries are supporting their ally, Palestine. Same way, I would argue that America needs to be unabashedly supporting Israel because they're our friend and that we need to support them on any outcome that takes place because they were the ones originally attacked in that uh, in that conflict. If that wasn't the case, I would argue the same thing just because Israel's our ally. Just on that point, 
So let's say it's against the U.S.'s interest to fully support Israel in, in Palestine. Let's say it's going to cause a bigger headache for us to support them. You're saying no matter what, we have to support them. No matter no what. Matter okay. what. Because I'm worried about a world war. Like, that's what concerns me. I don't think we want more conflict in the Middle East. So the the U.S. is trying to tiptoe right now on a tightrope, and it's really difficult. If you're a friend, you need to be a real friend. And my argument is, is that when America was attacked time and time again by different assailants in the past, whenever 9-11 took place and, you know, terrorists attacked the United States, a lot of our allies, no matter what their financial or economic situation was, because it's not like we went to go check out what their GDP situation is in their country, they still assisted us in those conflicts. When Afghanistan, the Afghanistan war took place, where America put, you know, troops on Afghanistani ground, a lot of other countries were in support and provided aid to us in that conflict. There was also other countries in the same region that provided assistance to us in that conflict. My point is, is that you can never justify war. There's never a right amount of people that are going to die in any conflict. And there's never a right amount of people that should die in any conflict because it's war. War is a bloody situation. Sometimes people like Trump are right. All war is bad. People are killing each other for no reason. We need to quit. We need to stop people from killing other people. That should be the way it should be. But at the same time, when wars take place, it's like, it's kind of like, it's that situation where it's like, enough is enough. A lot of things have happened to the point that has led the country to the brink of war. Everyone wants to prevent war from taking place, but war is like the last resort. So in that conflict situation, no one is benefiting. Israel is not benefiting from going to war with Hamas. Hamas or the Hamas people didn't benefit at all from them attacking Israel in the first place. Hence, all of those situations, any conflict that takes place, the people that are at war are always going to be at a worse, more of a disadvantage than what they were in their situation before they went into war. But you go into war because you're trying to resolve a conflict and the way you do it is by fighting it out. Sometimes it's not the best way to talk about it in that way, but it's war. Let's see what Americans are thinking about this right now. So Nick, would you mind reading that? Yeah, so Palestinian pros and Biden cons. A recent Quinnipiac University poll highlights a growing generational divide in the United States' views on the Israeli-Hamas conflict. Young voters, particularly those under 35, increasingly sympathize with Palestinians and disapprove of Israel's response to the October 7th Hamas attack. 66 percent. Um, Democrats led by President Biden face internal divisions, with 60 percent disapproving of Israel's response. In contrast, Republicans aligning more with the current U.S. government overwhelmingly approve at 73 percent. In the poll conducted from November 9th to 13th, surveyed 1,574 registered voters, signaling a noticeable shift in public sentiment toward the ongoing conflict. Despite the Democratic Party seeing a majority of their younger voters favoring Palestine, a Pew Research poll shows that about 7 in 10 Jews identify with or lean toward the Democratic Party, including 68% of Jews by religion and 77% of Jews of no religion. Just 26% of U.S. Jews overall identify with the Republican Party or lean towards the GOP. The most prominent Democrat in the Senate, Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, also hails from a Jewish family. And according to the latest NBC News poll, a majority of respondents disapprove of Biden's handling of Israel-Hamas and overall foreign policy. Currently, Biden's approval rating has dropped to 40%, the lowest since he has become president. So, Tyler, turning it back to you, 
You know, what do you make of the recent pollings and the split with young people? This is quite the shift. It really signals an internal conflict within the Democratic Party. I'm What I'm thinking about is like, how does this affect the election? I'm not sure if you're a Democrat right now and you don't agree with what Biden's doing, you switch to Republican. You can't. You have nowhere to go. So does that mean you still vote for Biden? You still vote for the Democrats? I'm not quite sure. But it is a bit concerning to really see this because... That attack was horrific, and it was unprompted at the time. And for for the majority of younger people to actually be, you know, supportive of the Palestinian side, it, it's kind of disgusting in my point of view. I'm surprised that the Democrat Party can get Jews and Palestinians to all vote for them no matter what. This is what I was telling Nick. I was I wish my party was like that, man. Like, my party can't get two Republicans to jump on board to support one cause. And you got this other party that are like, yo, these people have been fighting for generations and they hate each other with a passion and their people are blowing each other up in a different country. But at the same time, they all vote for the same person, Joe Biden. That's so cool, man. I wish like my party was able to figure that stuff out. The Democratic Party, man, they get their crap together. They somehow get all their people, no matter how much they hate each other, to vote for the Democratic cause. That's the way a party should be. I wish my party was like that party. Yeah, I guess from my perspective, I think it's not really surprising at all. Um, For one, yes, in terms of what happened on October 7th, horrific. But as far as the overall Palestinian cause, easy to understand why this is the case. The main reason being that in academia, the mainstream view is that the Palestinians have it rough. And if you go back in time, like, for example, look at, you know, civil rights icon Nelson Mandela. He was pro-Palestinian cause. If you look at, you know, even John Mershimer or mm-hmm. Mearsheimer, I forget I how to pronounce his name. He's the guy who says, oh, Ukraine and the United States, we brought this on ourselves by expanding NATO. Russia's response to invade Ukraine is all our fault, and it's on us. Even he will say, Israel is an apartheid state, and that's just how it is. Like, all these different people, like, across the spectrum, will say, like, the mainstream academic view pretty much is, oh, the Palestinians have it rough. And if we're framing it with the whole oppressed and oppressor thing, then it's, again, no big shock that a lot of young students will end up identifying more with the Palestinian cause because when you just stack up, like, which side has more resources, which side is doing better, which side is whatever, naturally you're going to come to the conclusion that Palestinians living in Gaza have a pretty shitty life and you're going to sympathize with them more than the Israelis. Now, when you actually throw in October 7th, I think that's where everything gets befuddled and mixed up and that's where the split comes in but as far as just overall sympathizing with the palestinian cause it's really not surprising because this has been happening for years if not decades in academia where that's just the mainstream view and it is around the rest of the world too the united states is one of the very few countries that doesn't see it this way and so for all the other nations for example like the the un the main un tagline for this is pretty much like, hey, the Palestinians have it rough, and that's the perspective. So for me, just wanted to say, like, it's it's not surprising that young people in the United States are leaning the way they're leaning on this conflict overall. But as far as October 7th, I would say that they're wrong. But, you know, just overall, that's Freaking my Freaking academics, man. Befuddling everything. And I mean, without all that being said, this even bleeds over into the U.S. Congress. So critique. What, what happened? There was a recent congressional letter, a lot of young Democrats, the squad, as they're known, put out something else. 
Can you give us a quick summary of what's going on with that? Yeah, so I called the story the pro-Palestinian squad of politics. So basically the squad, which is made up of 21 different members of Congress, and that includes a few senators, I think. There are the people that are like on the AOC team. They're the ones that put out a letter talking about how horrific the whole situation is in Gaza and how they feel sympathetic towards the Palestinians and America needs to change their tune. And America needs to be more in support of Palestine. There's all these people that are dying over there and we're supporting genocide. Basically, that was the rift. And this letter was signed by a bunch of people that were in the House, like Rashida Tlaib, Cory Bush, James McGovern, Pramila J. Paul, Ilhan Omar, a lot of these very famous people that are in the squad, per se. And this squad is made up of like 21 different members of Congress. So these squad members, I wanted to just talk about, like many of these members make up the undeclared young progressive faction of the Democratic Party known as the squad. The squad has a sizable support for many pro-Palestinian voters as well, and members of the squad have encouraged and taken part in many of the massive pro-Palestine protests that have been taking place throughout the country. And the main conversation with the with the squad is that they follow this concept that Rashida Tlaib basically pointed out. Representative Rashida Tlaib, Democrat from Michigan, was seen repeating her statement that mirrors the Hamas talking point that Israel was solely responsible for the Hamas terror attacks that killed 1,400 Israeli citizens. So the squad, especially like AOC and the bunch, they're the ones that are arguing that Israel had everything coming to them and everything that took place, Israel deserved it. So Israel deserved Hamas to annihilate 1,400 people living in Israel and that Israel attacking back is just as unjust as Israel, I mean, you know, like Israel being taking, you know, giving Palestinians poor conditions. And the argument there is that a lot of people that are within the Democratic Party would argue against that notion that are the ones that are in charge. But the squad is that pro-Palestinian wing within that Democratic Party right now. And I would say, I would say that it's, close to the, it's similar to the Freedom Caucus in the Republican side or people that are in um, the MAGA train, where it's like there's only a few, few people that are in that you know, group of people that are, that are very vocal. But the squad is one of those where they represent the young progressive idea, ideas and the movement of the young, youth of the Democratic Party. And that's like the argument that they have is that Palestine was in the right and that Hamas deserved, uh, was right in um, bombing Israel and killing all their people and kidnapping 249 citizens and that, they, and that they're in support of everything that took place and that Israel should back down because Israel is literally murdering all these Palestinians. That's their argument and just wanted yeah. to sum that up. So do you guys have any yeah, thoughts so, on this? Yeah, so I mean... I think for the most part, most most of these people, you know, saying I support a ceasefire, we, we should look out for the for the lives of civilians, we shouldn't just be obliterating everyone. I can understand that. But someone like Rashida Tlaib, she just makes me want to vomit. Like, this woman is absolutely disgusting. To say, of course you deserved that to happen because of historical events. I mean, what kind of person can say that? Well, she is Palestinian. I, I mean, I don't care. <laughs> so she, like, in terms of personal identity, it, it makes sense that she would say that. I guess for for me, the difference would be, for example, if this was an attack on Israeli military outposts, I'm like, okay, that's fine. This happens all the time. It's how it goes. Intentionally targeting and slaughtering civilians is a step too far. You shouldn't be doing that. I think that's wrong. But I think if you're just a Palestinian American, it doesn't like it's not a great like conundrum. And as far as like it being disgusting, I think if she ends up defending if she ends up defending what Hamas is doing, then I agree with you. And she probably has done that. 
But as far as just like her being a Palestinian American and then sympathizing with the Palestinian cause, like that in itself, I don't think is like this immoral thing. It makes sense. And if anything, I mean, just to devil's advocate here, which I, I know we love. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, suppose this because this is being treated as, you know, 9-11, right, for Israel. Suppose 9-11 or here, let's say the United States bombed Afghanistan to begin with. And then 9-11 happened as a response. And then we went back and we bombed them again. It's like <laughs> sort of Afghanistan retaliating for us bombing them in the first place. I think a lot of people, if that was the sequence of events, you would see that as justified. And for a lot of Palestinians, that's how they frame this. They would say this conflict started a lot, um, a lot before October 7th. And as a result... They kind of hand wave it away and say anything goes. I don't agree with that. But as far as just like who has the moral authority to be fighting who, I mean, look, both sides, which it's so lame to say both sides, but they really do both have claims as far as, oh, you could point to this massacre or this massacre or this massacre. Like these people have been killing each other for decades. And because that's been happening for so long, this didn't start on October 7th. There's all this history that you have to wade through and deal with to approach this conflict. And so for October 7th itself, I think was wrong. But as far as like, I get, I hate that I'm even having to defend this woman because I You're personally right. don't agree with her. But yeah. No, what Nick's saying has points. I, I mean, my only argument would just be that if you're in the conundrum where you're like, I don't really know what side I, you know, want to side with. They're both, they've both done a lot of bad things to both, to each other. I would just argue that you know, this is where you need to take my stance if you are like, you know, on the fence where you're confused on what America should do. Israel's America's ally. Palestine's not America's ally. You support your ally. Sometimes it's not the best answer. Sometimes like, you know, you're saying that, you know, just because it, Palestine did all this stuff doesn't justify Israel doing the same stuff to them. But that's their decision because they were the country that was bombed originally. So if they were the ones that are in the conflict, then if they're our ally, we need to just support our ally. And sometimes I think that that conversation makes more sense if you are absolutely one of those people that are you're like, all right, well, I'm not sure. I think that this side has some good points and this side has some good points. You're, you're going to have to choose a side eventually. And I think that's what it eventually boils down to. Because you're never going to, nothing is ever perfect. You can argue that, you know, the, the people that are pro-Palestine right now are anti-Semitic. And the people that, and I would argue Iran is the main country involved in all this stuff too. Because they're the, they're the ones that literally want to exterminate Israel off the map, which started this whole, con, this whole thing to happen in the first place. Because if Iran didn't finance Hamas, Hamas wouldn't have had the money to coordinate such a big attack. So... Iran is more responsible than all these other players. But I would just argue that, you know, that's the situation when it deals with war. And, you know, our only, our, as I feel like as an American, my belief would just be that we need to support our allies and our ally is Israel. So we need to support Israel. So us supporting the other side, I wouldn't even vote for it. If I would, if somebody like one of these squad people was on a ballot and it was some other Democrat on the ballot. No matter how much I hate that Democrat, I would still support that Democrat because I just believe that, you know, I'm more patriotic and I would support people that are supporting allies. That's and, and Tyler, just to be clear, by the way, for Tlaib, like if she ends up defending October 7th to basically say they had what's coming to them, I would absolutely condemn that. But that, no, no, so I, I just no, want to make sure that was clear. That is, that is clear. And, 
And I understand. And in Pratique, I do appreciate how clear and concise and consistent you've been on this whole thing. You're like, allies support. It's very easy and simple. And I, you know, I like that. Elect Pratique. People would know. (laughs) But what's the U.S. going to do? Yes. All right. Let's move away from this. Hey, man, if I was president, that's my, that would be my argument. Like, you're going to win some people and you're going to lose some people, but it is what it is. Like, if you try to make it complicating, then it's just going to make it more complicated. Yes, and especially, uh, hopefully next week or or the following week, we will have a special guest talking about this more. But for now, I think that's enough. Let's move on here. So moving on to more domestic things, we have Sleepy Joe knocks Newsom out of the park. So President Biden spoke in California at the Asia-Pacific Economic Co- uh, Cooperation Summit, where he decided to take a few stabs at Governor Gavin Newsom in his own backyard. With the recent accusations that Governor Newsom is supposedly running a shadow campaign for the presidency, Sleepy Joe came out swinging, saying, I want to thank him. He's been one hell of a governor, man. Mr. Biden told the crowd at the conference, matter of fact, he could be anything he wants. He could have the job I'm looking for, the president then joked. There are two additional Democrats running for president right now, Biden said. One is a congressman from Minnesota. The other one is a governor of California. But only one has the guts to announce it. Mr. Newsom has denied any plans to run in 2024, saying President Biden is going to run and I'm looking forward to him getting reelected. So what are your guys' thoughts on this overall? You know, you always talk about how, like, Trump is really funny. I thought Biden was pretty <laughs> funny in this situation. <laughs> he literally goes into California, so Newsom's home turf, and he's like, yo, man, your governor, he doesn't even have the balls to announce that he's running against me. Why why, why are you even have this guy? Like, he doesn't have the guts to do anything, which I'm like, that's so funny. If Biden did more of this and, for you know, remembered who he is and what he's doing and, like, you know, how old he is and what... He doesn't make up random stuff on the spot and just follows scripts. Dude, I honestly think Biden's the best Democrat that there is in the country to become president. Like, the thing is, like, you know, no matter what all these people say, hey, you have to think about it this way. Biden's going to get all the Jewish people and all the Palestinian people to support him. To me, I think that's fascinating. And like, this is why Joe Biden is the president. And this is why AOC and those and Bernie Sanders and none of those losers are president. I think, look... Democrats did one thing right. They got the best candidate that they got out there. The irony is that they don't have anybody else is any better than Biden. All the other people they, are garbage, They don't so have that's what it like is. That, that Trump-like figure. They don't have that Vivek-like figure. They don't have anyone that's willing to be an attack dog in the Democratic Party. So Biden can come out and say it and joke like this only because there aren't people with balls in their party willing to do anything about it, which, which in your opinion is a good thing. You're like, hey, look, everyone's falling in line. That's great. But at the same time, I mean, where, where's the guts? I mean, when you're voting for the Democratic Party, who like who are you voting for? No one has a spine. In my opinion, I think that's actually a solid point for Biden. Think about it this way. His ability Republicans to unite. How many people running against Party, Trump sure. right now? And dude, look at all these people that are running. They're literally losers. Like, yeah, like Trump's been winning 60% of the vote and he hasn't even done anything. Like the guys only literally had like a few press conferences. Off the stuff going on is just a bunch of controversies dealing with him with all these judicial people that want to throw him in jail from ban him from running. Like, thing is, he's at 60% right now based on this, that. Like, to me, like, if you, with Biden, he hasn't even had any of these other losers that would only get, like, 5% of the vote to even run against him. Apart from RFK, that actually did reach around 20%, which is good on RFK, granted. But it's like, you know, I think that Democrats need to just accept the fact that Biden is the only candidate that they have that can win anything. 
and just live with him. And if he dies in office, so be it. Like, they don't have anybody else that can run and win. Kamala Harris can't win. Gavin Newsom can't. He doesn't even have the balls to announce to run for president. So he can't win. None of these people can win in that party. They literally have as many losers that are crowding their party as much as our Republican people have losers in crowding our party. So I literally think that Biden and Trump are the two best candidates running for president. And no matter what all these people say about age and all this other stuff, at least Biden has the balls to announce and just say whatever he feels like saying. Sometimes him being stupid and making fun of stuff and not, not even being himself is better is a better selling point than these people like AOC and Rashida Tlaib just saying whatever they feel like that they feel like is going to win them votes. Because at least Biden isn't saying anything that stupid. And even if Biden says something stupid, he still gets all these people that are like intelligent within their Democratic Party to support him. So he's winning the show. So... In all honesty, I think that, dude, Nick, you need to accept the fact, man. Joe Biden is the best guy y'all got. I refuse critique, but you know, I, I actually, I actually have come around to thinking that Biden is the best candidate, Ooh. and here's why. I was eating lunch the other day, and as I was taking a bite of my sandwich, it dawned on me. Okay, if they run someone else this time around, and they lose to Trump, dear God, what does the party have to offer anyone in the future going forward? Nothing. But if they run Biden, if he wins, great, whatever. He's not going to run next time. Who cares? If he loses, it's like, oh, the next election four years from, from now, they're going to run someone who's different. And they're going to say, look, people, we've changed. We have a new candidate for you. You should vote Democrat because we have something new to offer. And that's why I think they're going to end up sticking with him. Now, maybe no one is thinking about it that way. Maybe I'm just being an idiot. It makes sense. But I That's genuinely think, I genuinely think that it's a good idea for them to do exactly what they're doing, which sucks because I don't want Biden to run. I don't know. I don't want Trump to run. I don't want either of these geezers to run. And but, you know, Newsom probably loses. In all fairness, on the opposite side, my argument would just be that, like, I hate Biden the same way I hate all the other Democrats. What I hate most about Biden is this guy is the only one that could beat Trump. I'm just acknowledging the fact that he's the only one that has the ability to beat Trump. Like, I don't like it. Do I want Biden to run again? No, because I'm sure if Kamala Harris or Gavin Newsom or Pete Buttigieg or any of these other losers were to run, they would all lose, which I would much rather prefer a Republican candidate. I got to say, how sad would that be, though, for so many of these identity causes? For, for example, like for Hillary Clinton to win, let's say Hillary Clinton was the VP, right? Let's just pretend that. I know Kamala yeah. Harris is, so it's the same idea. But like, as far as having the first woman become president, I think it would be a nice story for the United States to say, hey, everyone voted for the first woman to be president. Imagine if in the history books, the first woman to be president is only president because they were the VP and the main president died. And then the next couple election cycles, women keep losing. It's like, that wouldn't, that wouldn't be a, a nice story, right? I've been see, watching a lot of movies lately, and that would be a pretty <laughs> lame ending. I agree with you. But see, I would also say that there actually have been a lot of good candidates that have been women that have ran. Again, I would argue oh, sure. this. Nikki Haley might be the best candidate that has ran for president among all these other female candidates. Not for candidates. Tyler. Hillary hater. Clinton, I will say, was a really solid candidate for the Democratic Party, but she lost. And she lost twice. And like eventually when you lose Negative a lot, charisma. you need to just yeah. like give up. 
And Nikki, and was it Hillary Clinton doesn't really seem people friendly people. Like she seems like the people that you're like, man, this is like some stuck up lady running for president. Like it could be anybody. It doesn't have to be Hillary Clinton. You could make Hillary Clinton a man and put him up for president. <laughs> and you'd be like, man, this is like a stuck up person running for I'm president. I'm sure there's Why some conspiracy theories around that. My point is, is that, you know, I, in all honesty, I think that you need to have the best quality candidate and it will come. Right now, Democrats don't have much quality, but that's just that's the situation there is right now. It's the same way you'd argue that on the Republican side, if you took out Trump, who are, who is the one that could actually win? I would argue Nikki Haley could win, but can she win? She can't even win her own primary. How is she going to become president? My point is, is that that stuff is in the back of a lot of people's minds. And when you remove Biden from their race... Like, if you look at all their polls that have taken place where they're trying to figure out who's the best suited to become president for the Democrats, there's no one that they can consolidate around. There's no one that they're like, man, this person, that's the future of our party. And back in the day, that used to happen where, you know, whenever, let's say, Bill Clinton, like, stepped down or when George W. Bush stepped down, like, the parties would consolidate around people that they're like, this is the best we have to offer. And then they lost or won. But I think that's the thing that's lacking right now. There's a reason why Trump is the only Republican that can win. In my opinion, it's just the same way is the only reason why Biden can win. There's no other Democrats that can beat Trump and there's no other Republicans that can, you know, beat Biden. This is it. It's like it's Trump or it's Biden. And I think that the more and more that we acknowledge that, the better it is. Because the more you drag out this conversation that you're going to have some other random dude do a shadow campaign, I just think that you're fooling other people and you're just like not admitting it to yourself. And with that, I think that's a good place to move on here. So tell us about the stopgap bill. The title is called The Government is Staying Alive. So President Biden signed a bipartisan stopgap funding bill preventing a government shutdown until after Thanksgiving. The short-term continuing resolution passed with bipartisan support in both the House with a vote of 336 to 95 and the Senate with a vote of 87 to 11. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer praised the bipartisan effort for keeping the government open without harmful cuts. Speaker Mike Johnson aimed for a clean CR without spending cuts or controversial policies. It funds most government sectors until January 19th and the Department of Defense until February 2nd. The clean CR provides time for negotiations on appropriations bills and avoids spending cuts and a potential shutdown. Despite setbacks, Johnson remains optimistic while Democrats celebrate avoiding spending cuts and a potential shutdown. So it's all the hoorah moment right now. What are your thoughts with the government staying alive? Here we are again. We did it. <laughs> We're still alive. But they weren't able to reduce cuts. I think that is a hit against Mike Johnson. I think the Republicans are probably looking to do something like that. But overall, just as expected. Man, Matt Gates really was successful. Super impressed by uh, <laughs> Genius. Matt McCarthy. But um, yeah, how about the, I mean, we briefly talked about, I mean, look, this stuff happens. People come together at the 11th hour. They pass yeah, things. Same it's BS fine. politics. Same old, same old. But look, <laughs> for the competition for the biggest loser critique, for the, the Republican candidates, we were talking about some of them. How are they actually doing in the polls? So the title is called, Who Will Win the Competition for the Biggest Loser? In the GOP race for the White House, DeSantis is working his donor magic, and Haley's throwing $10 million ads like confetti, while other candidates still believe that they'll make America great again with less than 3% of the vote. And Ramaswamy has somehow been completely bulldozed after the past debate, dropping from 9% all the way down to 5%. 
with Pence and Scott dropping out, the lingering question is when with all when the rest will admit, when will the rest admit that Trump's the inevitable nominee? With all these other candidates crowding under 5%, DeSantis and Haley wish for fewer losers to win the political version of the game show, The Biggest Loser. Now, the landscape features Doug Burgum and Ryan Binkley, who failed to qualify for the third debate, polling under 3%. Another loser at 2%, Chris Christie, is doing his best to convince donors with the slogan, Because the Truth Matters. When he comprehends his political truth, Haley and DeSantis are there to eat his 2%. And with everyone working their butts off for every percentage point, Trump has taken close to 60% without even really trying. While Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, the hardest workers in the mix, aim to showcase that if they hit 20%, they deserve the keys to the White House. Who will be the victor in the race for number two, Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis? Or will Vivek Ramaswamy be the dark horse that can revive himself to steal the spotlight at the next VP debate? What are your thoughts, Nikki Teller? Well, Tyler, what do you like so much about Vivek? Oh, God. Well, so we're getting into this now, huh? Um, First, I just want to say that in this election, if Trump does not go to jail and it's not a significant charge, then there is no chance anyone else wins. I think we could all agree with that, right? I mean, you're kind of competing for second place here. Maybe a VP spot. It's Trump versus Biden. Why I have come to like Vivek. Um, One... The age thing matters. The generational difference matters. I think you need someone that has a new vision for the country. I think we're kind of aimless in a way. We have this MAGA movement, but really, we haven't really been able to put um, a strong framework around it. When you say MAGA, it's America first. What is, what is America first? Well, everyone has their own idea of what, what everyone nothing. has their own idea of what that means. But I mean, it's it's captivating. But wh- how can we package this in a way that's productive? And I think Vivek has come out with very interesting policies. You talk about getting rid of uh, birthright citizenship. If you are strong against immigration or like illegal immigration, that is a significant. It's a strong move, but it's a significant move. And I think coming out with a unique idea that is applicable to issues we're having that other people aren't discussing is is pretty important. I don't think other candidates are saying I'm as strong and pro-America as he is. For instance, in Ukraine, he's like, we need to go to the negotiating table. We're just pouring money and it's a dumpster fire. And until we do that, we're going to be continuing siphoning off money that Americans deserve. Same thing with Israel. We need to get our American citizens out of there. But for the most part, we need to look after America. My vision of what a great America looks like is investment into our own cities, into our own infrastructure, into our own transportation. I don't really see anyone talking about that or being as pro, you know, uh, uplifting America as someone like Vivek is. I think we need to completely revolutionize how we're looking at, at, at politics. We need to invest, but those investments need to be within America. And I just don't see any other candidate talking like that. Apart from that, Going back to Trump, I was never really too opposed with many of Trump's policies. What really got me about Trump is he has a huge ego, he's very narcissistic, and he cannot bring people together, which is a significant flaw. It's very helpful in campaigning, not very helpful in leading. What I see with Vivek is he'll come out and say, I'm looking for actually people that are smarter than me in certain areas to lead departments. I don't need to be the smartest guy in the room all the time. In fact, I don't want to be. And I, I think that kind of that kind of message is going to unite people, D- despite the pa- the fact that many of his policy positions might be divisive. I, I think he's still able to put his own ego aside to bring people together. Apart from that, he's the only candidate that's willing to do long form, you know, podcasts. For instance, he'll speak for an hour and a half about what he believes, fleshing out what he believes and why. 
Someone like Nikki Haley refuses to. She will not go into an interview unless she knows the questions ahead of time. She doesn't actually believe, or if she believes it, I don't I don't think she's even able to compete with someone like Vivek if they were just to speak there for an hour, an hour and a half. So with all that said, and there is more, but just generally speaking, I think he's the only candidate that is open that is somewhat honest with the American people in terms of what he's willing to do. I don't think it's easy to hide that fact in very long-form conversations, which he does. He's willing to speak to both sides of the aisle, even very liberal networks and podcasts. He's willing to go on and entertain those ideas and debate those ideas. A lot of other candidates are really afraid to do so for threat of you know losing percentage points. And look, here, he has been going down in the polls. That is for sure. At the same time, he has packaged like I said at the beginning, that MAGA movement. He did something Trump was not able to do. And if you believed in MAGA, if you believed in America first, he is your candidate. So if Trump does fall by the wayside, I think he picks up a lot of those votes. Now, is he perfect? Absolutely not. I, I don't, There he says some stuff and I'm like, what are you talking about? I don't agree with that. But at the same time, I think we need to shake things up in a way that, that's more productive. I don't want to see another neocon. I don't want to see another warmongering president. I don't want to see someone that's doing the same status quo stuff that we've been doing that's failed us. We're continually doing the same thing. If you're a moderate you know, voter, you're like, I just want the Republican or Democrat Party as they were. Do you like the direction of our country? Is, has that been helpful for us? In what ways has it been helpful? No, I think we need direction and guidance. I think we need a new younger voice for that. And he seems to represent that. Tyler is about to announce his political campaign <laughs> to change this country <laughs> and turn it all around. No, but those are really great points. I, I think I do agree largely that there's not a clear vision. Like when, when Biden goes up to speak, I'm not really like, oh, man, things are going to be so different in the future. I mean, for energy, I, just because it's something that I end up reading about a lot, I'm involved in the space, I'll say like, OK, I can see how this administration has really changed what's going on with America's energy future. But for a lot of other things, you don't really have clear line of sight into it. And that doesn't come through in terms of like the national understanding or the zeitgeist of what Biden stands for or what anyone stands for. Even Trump at this point, Trump, you know, he'll come in and say, oh, we're going to have vertiports. We're going to have all this stuff. And he like comes out of nowhere with this stuff, because like you said, like these candidates need to offer people a vision. And to your point about the moderates, you're absolutely right. Like, you know, people advocate for moderate you know, stances, but when no one's happy with how the country's going, it's like, all right, do we just have managed decline? Like what? That's not exciting. Let's do something different. And maybe you take a chance on someone and maybe Vivek is that person. Um, but for Trump or, or Pratik, do you have any points on Vivek or can I do the Trump story in Colorado? I have a point on the other two people, Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley. So these people, like, you know, when we talked about it from the you gotta get-go. got to defend like, the neocons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I, it, after you won, you watch those debates in, like, you know, the VP debate, as is being said. Like, Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley sound like the most genuine, basic politicians. And in all honesty, there is, like, a voice and sentiment for that, too. The reason why Ron DeSantis is close to 20% and the reason why Nikki Haley is not that far behind him after all these other losers have started to drop out is because these are the most genuine general politicians that they are. Like, and maybe that, you know, when we've had people like Donald Trump that have been president, they have been a lot more outlandish. They have been all out there. They've been, you know, doing what they're doing. And I feel like maybe Ramaswamy falling to 5% reflects that too. 
maybe our country is wanting a direction where they want the basic, you know, status quo, boring politician more than having somebody with actual ideas and views and thoughts on things. Because Ramaswamy's different. He's the most different candidate that there is. He's unique. These people, Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, what is unique about them? Nothing. They're the most basic, general, you know, boring politicians that you think they are. But they are at 20 to 18% because of that. And I think that the more and more of these other people that drop out, because Chris Christie's a loser and he needs this 2% to go to one of these people. And then you have Ryan Binkley and what is his name? Doug Burgum that I can't even get 2% because they're even more losers than Chris Christie. Those guys will eventually get to one of these people. And I think with Nikki Haley or if Ron DeSantis were to drop out, whoever drops out, the vote goes to that other person. So it all is squaring up. No matter how much I've talked about how all these people are losers and like Trump's going to win the race regardless, because they've been in three debates, people see them. And eventually when Nikki Haley with her 18% or Ron DeSantis with his 20% drops out, they will go to the other person. So then the election is important again. Because there's going to be two genuine candidates. And Ramaswamy, if Trump is the candidate, will be his vice president candidate, most likely. Because people are going to see him that way, even if Trump may not choose him. So Ramaswamy is never going to get that flair. Until, you know, when Trump is not around anymore. Then Ramaswamy will win that Trump vote in the future. So I think my breakdown would just be that all this stuff does matter. And I think that what matters a lot too is that if Trump goes to jail or if does, Trump does face some kind of proceedings... Republicans do have two candidates. I don't think these candidates can personally beat Biden. I think Trump can beat Biden. Even though Trump hasn't beaten Biden, I still think I would much rather run with an incumbent than run with somebody that has never been in a general election before. Oh, like Trump before. going into his but election. People don't feel that. Yeah, but people don't feel that way sometimes. And I think, and, but when Trump ran for real for general election, Hillary Clinton had never been a presidential candidate either. Joe Biden has experience and Joe Biden is there. So I think that's a big important factor. As long as Joe Biden doesn't die or do something stupid and like, you know, just kill himself somehow, like he does, he is the best option that they got. And I think that if Democrats are smart, they'll run with their candidate that wins 50 to 60% of their polls, no matter if there's 20 people running against him or if there's five people running against him. And I think like with Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, if Trump cancels, one of these two people, or if, if like, let's say the other people cancel leaving one of these two people, they need to step up their game to show why they're the best. And if they can do that, they may win the general. But the question is, is that there's nobody has that Trump flair. And I think what, what Tyler's talking about with Vivek Ramaswamy having that Trump flair, that does mean something. But I just think Ramaswamy's chance isn't now. His time is later on. When these people are no longer there and when Trump can't run anymore, then Ramaswamy is going to matter. But right now, when you have Donald Trump, why does Ramaswamy matter? And that's when you're like Trump or basic general boring politician. And it's going to be either Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley because all the other losers mm -hmm. are losers. Yeah, and, uh, I actually I have two more comments on Ramaswamy. Nick, did you want to go first? No, you okay, tell yeah. it, go for I, it. I just wanted to close just thinking about some some other things that I just wanted to make sure I included. So first of all, he's the only person talking about civics and civics tests and Americans actually caring about being in America and immigrants who come to this country actually loving America and wanting to be in America for 
for what it is, for the values it has, not trying to import uh, their own. So I think that that is important. And lastly, I think he's revolutionizing, just like Trump did in 2016, how political campaigns are done with his activity on social media, which I think will pay off maybe years from now. But I think this strategy he's implementing is tremendous. And lastly, um, going on to that strategy element, he's done something that I thought was just brilliant, where he's basically running affiliate marketing, where he's saying, if you get people to donate to me, I'll give you a kickback of 10%. Things like this, to me, signals creativity that I think would be very helpful in leadership in our country. Because currently we don't have that. With someone like Biden, there's not there's not going to be any sort of creative new ideas coming out. You're going to get tapioca. He's the tapioca man. You're going to get bland food. Uh, but with, with, with someone else, you at least have an opportunity to change for the better. And that that's all I want to say there. Hold on. What's the... What's the ten percent kickback, Tyler? Well, What's no. So about? it's it's. Let's say I, you know, I get I get you to donate a hundred dollars to Vivek through my link. Vivek give me, gives me ten dollars. So I, it's just like what this is what Andrew Tate did and how he became so popular online. When I'm sorry, we can start a multi-level marketing scheme just like that. I think it's genius. I think you get people to work for you, and they comp they get compensated for it, and and it benefits oh, them because the virality is like for Trump. Sorry, going more into the weeds. Trump succeeded because of the meme machines. People online loved to meme this guy because he's such a character, right? Well, Vivek is basically automating that. He's turning it into a business. He's saying if you meme for me and get people to donate through whatever link I provide you, you're going to benefit and make money from that. These sorts of ways of thinking about it are, in my mind, genius. So, No, it's smart. It's smart. But also, maybe we should get into the business. It's like Herbalife yes, we, all over By again. the way, this podcast but, is now uh, sponsored by... Take us to Colorado, Nick. <laughs> yeah. All right, so Trump has won in Colorado for now. Um, former President Donald Trump will remain on Colorado's Republican primary ballot as a Denver District Court judge rejected a lawsuit seeking his disqualification. The plaintiff, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, uh, in parentheses, crew is what they're going by, argued that Trump's actions around January 6th triggered Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Judge Sarah B. Wallace cited conflicting interpretations and a lack of clarity in ruling the section inapplicable to Trump. Now, the team for Trump praised the decision, denouncing it as election interference, and that same group, Crew, plans to appeal to the Colorado Supreme Court, emphasizing that this marks the first finding of insurrection against a presidential candidate. Um, let's gloss over that very quickly and go right into the polls critique, because I think the two go hand in hand. So what's going on with the polls? So it's time for poll time. So with the polls, the main thing that we need to know, I'll talk about the Republican primary ballot first, because that's what's important, too is that Trump is at 58% right now, based on the most recent NBC News poll, where DeSantis follows Trump at 18%, um, Nikki Haley's at 13%, and then is Ramaswamy at 3%, Chris Christie at 3%, Tim Scott, who had canceled at 1%, um, Hutchinson, the governor from, I guess, where is he from, Arkansas, at 1%, and then Burgum at 1%. So that's how that breaks down. And then if you were to look at the bigger polls, because this is important too now, because you have a bunch of random people that want to become president nowadays. So Biden and Trump, um, if you poll them, it's 40% and 35% based on a Fox News poll, where Trump's at 40%, Biden's at 35%. You throw Kennedy into the mix because he's an independent, he's at 13%. Then Manchin, who has talked about that he's going to run he's at five percent and joe stein who is the socialist candidate or not socialist candidate what is she the 
Um, green party? I forgot what the term the green what party her party usually. is. Green party candidate. She's running for four. She's at 4%. So... The breakdown is is that Trump is plus five if you put all these put all these people in there, and then if you put Cordell West, the other guy that's thing is that is gonna run too. He is currently polling when is Trump, RFK, Biden, and him. He's at three four percent. So these this is might be the most like diverse general election we're ever gonna have based on how many people are running. And I think some of that stuff surfaces back to the whole Republican Party, you know, Colorado ballot type stuff that Nick was talking in the, about in the beginning. And in the poll that was done by Reuters, which looks at just Biden, Trump, and RFK, Trump's at 32%, Biden's at 30%, and RFK's at 20%. So these third-party candidates are really going to have a moment in this election. So all of these things that take place and everything going on with Trump is all important because if you throw Trump out of that mix, the question is if you if you install Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley, all these losers that are less than 20%, 20% in that mix, Will they be able to have that same flair as Trump? And if they can't, then it's going to be a very interesting election, personally. But I think that's the, what you can take away from this stuff is that Trump does have an edge over all these other random people running. But it's like, if you take Trump out, what happens? And if he's removed from Colorado's ballot, it becomes precedent where he's going to potentially be removed from other states' ballots because all these judges are going to cite each other. So that's what's going to be interesting to see what happens. The war of Trump begins. Yes. For the sake of, you know, cultural, political stability in this country, do not ban him from these ballots. Let's have him on the ballot unless he's convicted of like a federal. I, there, there has to be a very good reason to get him off the ballot because too many people support this guy. And I think it would just sow so much chaos to do something like that. Um, so I, I'm glad uh, this decision went through and I hope that doesn't change. But in terms of the polls, Wow, the the whole Kennedy situation. We talked about this, you know, in previous weeks, but it, it it just changes everything. The fact that a third party candidate can actually shake up the entire election is just kind of incredible. I'm I'm actually glad it's happening because this is what our political system needs. We have the we have these candidates that people they're tepidly supporting. Even if you like Biden, do you love Biden? You don't love Biden. If if you love Trump, you know he has issues. You know he's toxic. You know he does things that aren't agreeable to many people so to actually have but you love but you, him anyway. you love him like like a stepfather that beats you you know like an attractive ex-lover but we can go with that too so um let's let's move on to old yeah. people tyler with with that thought um so desantis what is he saying about yeah, Trump's age? so shut up you oldies so Governor Ron DeSantis is out here playing the age card, saying that the presidency is not for someone who's pushing 80. I mean, he's 45, practically a spring chicken compared to Trump and Biden. He's like, look at me, I'm in the prime of my life, while Father Time is giving them a run for their money. DeSantis is basically saying, hey, Trump, if you jump back into the political ring in 2025, you'll be older than Biden was when he started. Time flies when you're debating, apparently. It's like a presidential version of who wants to be the youngest leader, but with more wrinkles and political drama. So this is an ongoing conversation. Going back to my boy Vivek like cake, he's a young, sprightly 38, so we'll throw, throw him in the mix there. Less than half of the age of both Biden and Trump, so let that sink in there. But what are you guys' thoughts on these comments by DeSantis? I think it's probably a smart move, um, but he probably should have pushed this message earlier. Where was this a year ago? I mean, it's like we've been saying, like, (laughs) they had to start doing this earlier. They played it way too safe. And now they're going to lose and it's going to be embarrassing. DeSantis donors 
pound sand because this really is a sad day for you all. Um, one person who is pretty young, by the way, is Argentina's new president, Pratik. Who, who is this guy? And what is, what is he all about? Argentina's right wins off the country's plight. So Argentina elected right-wing libertarian Javier Melay, who Nick was calling an anarcho-capitalist. Yeah. That's how he anarcho-capitalist, yeah. and he'll become the he be, he's becoming the next president of Argentina after Argentina's massive discontent over soaring rates of inflation and higher rates of poverty. According to CBS News, with 97.6% of votes tallied in Sunday's presidential runoff vote. Melai had 55.8%, and Econ Economy Minister Sergio Massa, his opponent, had 44.2%, <clears throat> according to Argentina's electoral authority. This was the biggest landslide victory since Argentina became a democracy in 1983. So, you got any thoughts on this Argentinian right-wing dude? I mean, look, he's pretty young. They kind of crushed the current sitting. It's so funny that, like, they had an economic minister who was in charge, and lost in the election to this guy, who granted he studied economics too, but it, it's just ironic that, like, I, I think the person who lost, the economist, he described it as uh, scoring an own goal, where he just blamed basically his own performance and his own how his party ended up doing, as opposed to saying, like, oh, you know, this guy really deserved it. He's like, ah, we, we screwed it up. But Tyler, you were about to say something? I was just going to say, it'll be interesting to see whether Argentina's alliances lie, because they have previously been pretty economically tied with China, I believe. So now we might see them move more to the West. And I'm actually, you know, uh, anticipating that they'll do better economically, and it'll be another nail in the coffin of, you know, socialist countries, and maybe more will follow. Well, this dude loves the United States. I mean, one of the things he ran on was dollarizing the country, which is just shifting over to the U.S. dollar. But he doesn't have the coalition to do it. So it's it's one of those things where you run the campaign trail, you say all these things, and then when it comes time in this in this country, it's sort of a parliamentary system. You have to build a coalition to actually get anything done. And so if you can't build the coalition, which he doesn't have the numbers for at the moment, he's not going to do that. So it it's just sort of interesting as far as like how people message on the campaign trail. And I got to say, this guy honestly was very fun. Like he had a chainsaw that he would rev up when he <laughs> when he was doing some uh, campaign stuff <laughs> in terms of how he was gonna you know chop things up and and shake things up. But um, I don't know. Again, like having an open like very libertarian guy now elected as the president of a country which hasn't been doing great recently. Um, but I I don't know. Again, it's just very interesting. And you know, to your point of shifting alliances in South America. Like, we'll see. One thing he did was he insulted the guy, uh, Lula da Silva, uh, who's running Brazil right now. So that's one point of contention where apparently some aide for da Silva was like, oh, he's going to have to apologize <laughs> for them to really, you know, have a good relationship. But yeah, like you were saying, it does shake things up and, you know, good luck to him. Hopefully he can uh, help turn the, the economy around in that country. I, for one, am pro Milai because Milai is pro-America. If you pro America, I pro you, you. I don't know anything about you. I don't know what he believes. I don't know his thoughts. I don't even care about his policies. He's not my president, but he pro America. And if you pro America, you got my vote. If you anti America, I don't like you, man. You need to like go somewhere else. Pratik, do you like economics professors? Because this guy is an economics professor. If that economics professor is pro America, I like him. <laughs> <laughs> if he anti America, Look, I don't like him. Pratik is very consistent. 
And he, he keeps, he's just straight up. I love it. I love that. Yeah. So with that, let's move on to our final story here. More of like an announcement, I suppose. So Nick. Yeah. So the former first lady, uh, Rosalind, Rosalind, oh, gosh, Rosalind. I don't know how to pronounce Rosalind. it. Virginia has screwed me up. Rosalind, Virginia. Anyway, so Rosalind Carter has passed away, sadly. So she's the former first lady and steadfast confidant to President Jimmy Carter, who passed away at the age of 96. The former president, Jimmy Carter, once said that um, he's Rosalind still alive. is my equal partner in every... Is she? Is he really still alive? Yeah. Wow. He's like 97 or that. 98. Yeah, what, what are the Carters drinking? What's in the water over there where they're living to like 96, hey, like man, 100? They, like, they just don't die. They eat the peanuts. Yeah, the peanuts give them life. That, we need more peanuts. That's our issue. Not enough peanuts. We need, um, we need less so, corn, more peanuts. He said... Yes, agreed. Uh, Jimmy Carter said that his wife was his equal partner in everything he ever accomplished. She provided wise guidance and unwavering encouragement. And as long as she was in the world, I always knew someone loved and supported me. Oh, that's oh so God. nice. A guy who's like pushing so nice. saying that that's, that's so nice. But imagine what Trump was going to say about his six wives. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she was there for a little bit. She looked great until she didn't. And then I yeah, he's like, yeah, she could have looked better. You know, she could have. Yeah. <laughs> After a valiant battle with dementia and months of declining health, she peacefully departed Sunday, 2 10 p.m in her plains georgia home surrounded by family so very sad news um but also a sweet love story in many ways and uh we'll we'll see how the current president's oh my gosh guys i'm actually reminded of uh how i forget who said this in the republican debates but there was that dude who said oh you know the current president is sleeping with a member of the teachers union and then mike pence on stage is like i'm also sleeping with a member of the teachers union <laughs> <laughs> and it's like all right mike pence whoa there oh my god but, yeah who said chivalry is dead romance still alive yeah uh, not maybe not a great president but pr- i think jimmy carter is probably a great he's pro- probably a great Asa person Hutchinson is the one that said that he doesn't want, like the president because he's sleeping with someone from the teachers union and then pence had to say that you know he also sleeping with someone from the teachers union my Fancy. god yeah you know two losers going at it but hey, guys, with that, you know, we had a few more stories here because we, we missed last week out of time. We had, we had one on Binance, the open AI situation on X, but we'll, we'll cover some of those next week as well as with whatever political news happens, of course. So with that, that's episode 156 of Politicana. Thank you for tuning in. Please share the podcast. Really appreciate it. And we will catch you next week. Later. <laughs>